All right. Well, thank you, Pastor Lusk. That was, uh, I was talking with somebody in the hallway, um, and it was just four Psalms, but that was, I think, so eye-opening, encouraging, helpful in, in lots of ways. And the amount of questions that I have, I think, shows that <laughs> in, in a really good way. There's a lot, a lot of questions, a lot of really good questions. Um, so let's uh, start with um, uh, how do you apply uh, Psalm, the things you were talking about with Psalm 110, Psalm 78, about the, the reign of Christ, um, his lordship over everything. We have this, uh, this hope in his victory, ultimately. Uh, but especially as we're looking at the way things are going in our country and more, maybe more poignantly in places like the greater Seattle area, um, do, do we have hope for this? And what does that look like? Yeah, well, I would say a couple things. Um, one is I think we have a lot of theoretical postmillennialism. I think we need more practical and lived out postmillennialism. Uh, so where we actually put our beliefs uh, about the growth of the kingdom into practice. Uh, so that, that's, that's one thing. I think a lot of times we kind of leave things, you know, at the theoretical level, and we need to figure out what that looks like lived out. But the other thing I would say is that uh, to be post-millennial does not mean that we believe that, 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 that church history is kind of this, you know, upward climb, you know, where just things just keep getting better and better and better, and there's never any dip. Uh, there are a lot of dips in church history. So even though if you look at history, say, over the last 2,000 years, we can see all, you know, incredible growth uh, in the church incredible growth for the kingdoms, you know, starting with Jesus, and then even if you say the upper room, you know, what, maybe 120 uh, on the day of Pentecost, and then, you know, 3,000 at the end of that day, and then how the kingdom has just continued to grow. And now you've got, you know, even if you say that lots of people who say they're Christian are nominal, you still have millions upon millions of faithful Christians in our country and in the world. So, the growth of the kingdom has uh, happened at a spectacular pace over the last 2,000 years. If you look at history in longer increments, say if you look at 500-year increments, you, know, you can see how the kingdom is progressively growing. But if you look at smaller increments, you know, post-millennialism does not mean that every single decade will be better than the previous one for the kingdom. And it certainly doesn't mean that in any particular locale. So, uh, you know, this, you know, the kingdom ultimately flows. It could be ebbing right now. We could, we could see decline. And I, I think we should be, we should not be naive about the reality that our culture is doing many things that God hates, that God considers an abomination and many things that call for God's judgment, you know, abortion, trying to redefine marriage. You know, we could talk about these things at kind of the cultural level, but then there's also all kinds of things just in people's personal lives that we know when we look at the world around us that we, we, we know that this is going to provoke judgment. And, you know, one thing we see from the history of Israel is that God is exceedingly patient. Uh, he's very, very patient, but that does not mean that God will... Uh, will never judge us. And so I think we have to be aware of that, that, uh, that we are in many ways a culture, a nation that is ripe for judgment. In fact, you could say the judgment has already begun because if you look at the progression in Romans 1, things like homosexuality being widespread and having approval in a culture is not just something that invites judgment, but it is itself the judgment. So the confusion over 
sexes and sexuality and family and the misery that that brings is itself a form of judgment. So in a way, you could say we're already experiencing that. But I would also say that we should not be, I mean, even if we say that there are reasons for short-term pessimism, even as we remain long-term optimists, I would say even in the short term, we should not give up. Uh, I would say we still have lots to work with in our culture. And I would say we've been here before as the church. There are many times where uh, it looked like the church was on the decline and suddenly the church bounced back in a big way. You know, G.K. Chesterton talks about how five different times the church went to the dogs and every single time it was the dogs that died. And I think if Chesterton was alive today, he'd say, well, there's a sixth time, you know, when the church has gone to the dogs. Uh, Because certainly in our day, you know, it looks like the church is pretty compromised in all kinds of ways. But that that does not mean that it's over. Um, One little piece of history that I take great comfort in is that if you go back and you look at uh, things in England, in the early 18th century, it was really, really bad. You know, the whorehouses and uh, the public drunkenness and even, you know, the drug crisis. I mean, they had, all, they had a lot of, uh, they had a, there were a lot of parallels between their society and ours in terms of the sexual depravity and other, other forms of depravity that were very manifest in society. And it looked like it was the end of the line for England and, and the British Empire. And, it, and, and he had a lot of preachers who were preaching these uh, what were called Jeremiah sermons, you know, basically these sermons that are, you know, call, you know, basically saying we're being judged or judgment is coming and, and, and sort of pessimism. And, and what does God do in the midst of that? Well, God raises up uh, George Whitfield and the Wesleys. And of course, then you've got things happening in, in America and the colonies and with Jonathan Edwards and, and so forth. The first great awakening happens. And it, and it actually had an incredible effect on British society in the 1700s. It led to what we call the modern missionary movement. There was this explosion of missionary activity. You know, the Brits basically controlled so much of the world, the British Navy, and, and that made it possible for missionaries to go to all these places where missionaries had not been before. So you just had this explosion of vitality in the churches and, and even, you know, the established Anglican church had a kind of renewal. And then, of course, the other... Um, the other denominations did, and so there was this there was this miniature reformation. Really, is what happened a uh, period of renewal. And, and I would love to think that something like that could happen in America. That we could look back on the early 21st century and say, "Yeah, things really did decline then, but God gave us an awakening." And I think that's something that we should be working for, striving for, praying for. And of course, in the meantime, whatever happens, I would say, you know, your best defense against whatever's happening in the culture is your own personal holiness and familial holiness. Make sure that your own life and your own family are in order. That's the best thing you can do, no matter what happens to the world out there. Wonderful. Piggybacking on that a little bit, uh, there were a couple questions with regards to uh, looking, as a pastor, looking at, from the outside, at the, the left coast, when would you encourage people to, to leave? Oh. But at what point do you say, hey, yeah, it's time to get out? Or conversely, um, how, how would you encourage people to, no, stay, stick it out? Because um, that's something that's in our conversations all the time out here is yeah, yeah. You know, we see people, friends, family moving out of state um, and others deciding, no, we're going to stay. We're going to put down roots. We're going to keep building here. Yeah. Uh, it's a good question. And I can't tell anybody what they should do in their particular set of circumstances because I imagine everybody's situation is different and there are all kinds of things to consider uh, like family connections, friends. Uh, kids, jobs, all kinds of factors that go into this. I do think you have situations where you can end up like a lot in Sodom and it's time to flee. 
uh, when, when there's simply no hope or possibility of reform and you know, basically the judgment has arrived. On the other hand, I would hate for uh, God's people to leave places where there's a real need for a Christian presence, a real need for Christians to be salt and light. And I would say certainly, um, one thing I would say that I think is interesting is that while our, you know, while our nation is very divided politically and, and that's somewhat regional, the big divide, it seems to me, politically, culturally, and, and, and you know, any other way you want to look at it, is really between the big cities and everybody else. And it's the big cities where the progressivism is really, really dominant. And then a lot of times when you get away from that, you have people who are, I'll just say, more in touch with reality. Uh, so, um, well, <laughs> uh, but so what I'm saying basically if you were to go to downtown Birmingham, there's a lot of ways in which downtown Birmingham is not that different from downtown Seattle. You know, you've got the rainbow flags, you've got the, you know, the progressive politics and, and these kinds of things. So, uh, you know, overall, uh, we might have, you know, a higher percentage of our people who are conservative or who claim to be Christian in some kind of way, but we deal with a lot of the same kind of things. Um, and especially in the cities, I think that's true. Um, whereas I know that if you come to a you know, state like Washington, it's not like every single person you know, is sold out to progressivism. There's you guys. You know, and there's a lot of other people in your state, I'm sure, who are the same way. So, um, or I mean, this is another way I put it. You know, there are more people that, vo that, that, that vote Republican in the state of California than the state of Alabama because there's so many more people. You know, so there's a lot of different ways of looking at this. Uh, you do have allies. You're not left all alone in this battle. You might feel like you don't, but you do. And I would say, don't walk away prematurely. You know, if you're thinking about doing that, that's to me, that's really more of a strategic question, you know, a tactical question. And again, I think it's gonna vary from person to person what is best. There might be somebody who, for a variety of reasons, it would be better for them to move to a conservative place, but I would, I would not want Christians to completely abandon the left coast in cities like Seattle or Los Angeles or Portland. We need God's people there too. So think about this. Lot fled from Sodom, okay? So there, there, there was a time to get away. But then think about Paul's missionary journeys. He's going into cities like Corinth, into cities like Ephesus that are every bit as wicked as Sodom was. You know, that, to, to, to be a sexual pervert in the ancient world, they would call you a Corinthian even if you weren't from there. Uh, because it was so, and then Paul goes in there and he plants a church. You might say, well, Paul, why bother with it? Well, because God's got his people there too. So God's got his people in Seattle. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep working for reformation and revival right here where you are. If God does call some away for various reasons, that's fine. I wouldn't hold a grudge against somebody for doing that. But, and if somebody wants to move to Birmingham, we'll take you. Uh, but, uh, you know, hey, I, hey, hey, hey. Well, <laughs> I didn't come here on a recruiting trip, but uh, your money, your real estate money would go a long way, right? Stop, uh, stop. If you want a mansion. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> no, thank you. That's, that's really, really a good encouragement. Um, uh, talking about Psalm 23, uh, should we send more pastors to work on a farm? Well, that's a good question. I, I, you know, I would say that uh, just about everybody, you know, when Paul says to work with your hands, you know, we kind of take that else, we'll just do work. And, and that's, that's fair. I will allow that. If you, you know, if the most that you use your hands to work is moving a mouse around for your computer, that's still work, obviously, so that counts. But I do think there is something very healthy about working with your hands. So I wouldn't make this a matter of law, but I would say as a matter of wisdom, there's something really healthy about working with your hands, like you would on a farm or doing, you know, say some kind of mechanical work or something. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the book from Matthew Crawford. 
uh, what's it called, um, shop class as soulcraft. And one point he makes is that, you know, you have all these sort of Ivy League elites who have all these what they think are brilliant ideas, you know, and they get to positions of power where they impose their crazy ideas on the rest of us. And these are people who have never had to deal with reality. One thing that will happen if you work on a farm or you work on a car or you, you know, do home repair is there's an objective reality outside of you that you have to encounter and submit yourself to in order to accomplish whatever it is, you're, you're, whatever task you're working on. So there's a kind of humility that requires. And of course, also, if you work with your hands, you get humbled because you realize you're gonna do a lot of things wrong or inefficiently you know, until you really learn. There's a certain skill there. So I, I think that's a great book that kind of captures this. He's, he's talking more about mechanics than, than agrarian work, but it's, it's the same concept. Um, so I would say, be great for everybody to have some experience working with your hands because it does put you in touch with objective reality. I mean, there's a reason why the guys at trade schools don't fall for the transgender garbage because your plumber knows that these fittings only go together a certain way, okay? And at the Ivy League school, the guy who's never touched a pipe wrench and never been on a farm to see how animals actually mate, uh, you know, he might have these crazy ideas about what we can make work in the world. And then when it all goes berserk, of course, he's not going to be held accountable for that. So, so I would love it if at least we could get all Ivy League students to go work on a farm or work on cars for at least one semester while they're in college. I think that'd be great. Um, it's helpful for everybody else, too. But most of us end up kind of doing some of that kind of stuff anyway, just of necessity. It really seems to be our elites. Sometimes there's even a distinction made between the, the virtual class and the physical class. I've seen this, you know, where uh, you have the people who actually work in the world of objective reality, and then the people, you know, everything's virtual. And that's another distinction to make. And there's a kind of Gnosticism, I think, that comes if you're just in that virtual class and you've never worked with your hands, you might have all kinds of economic theories or theories about, um, the genders or whatnot that are just completely insane, but you don't know that because you have so little experience with real life, with objective reality. So. Um, hermeneutical question for you. You talked, when you were talking about Psalm 110, uh, you said that when we find a piece of, or a section of a Psalm or any other Old Testament passage quoted in the New Testament, we should assume that the con all of the context for that Psalm yes. is there. You use the example of hyperlinks, right? When somebody yep. includes a hyperlink, they're not just talking about that one particular phrase, they're usually including the whole, the whole context. Right, right. Can you um, expound on that a little bit more? Help us to understand um, how do we know that that's actually what yeah. the New Testament authors yeah. intended? Yeah, well, it's a great question. Uh, and, and I think one of the great, um, one of the great insights that uh, the, 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 the biblical theologians, the biblical scholars have, have had that, it, you know, obviously, you know, you've developed these things over the centuries as God brings his church to greater maturity is understanding how the New Testament makes use of the Old Testament. So let me give you one example. A great, a great book that deals with this is Richard Hayes' book, uh, what's it called? The Echoes of Scripture in the Letters of Paul. Very good book that deals with this kind of thing. And basically what he looks at is places where the New Testament has not just explicit quotations, but allusions to the Old Testament. So it's invoking the Old Testament. And if you're a really sensitive reader and you know your Old Testament well, you'll pick up on that. And some of his examples may be more convincing than others. Um, Peter Lightheart's work or Jim Jordan's work on the book of Revelation, you know, basically the whole book of Revelation is kind of this intertextual collage of images and language and symbolism drawn from the Old Testament that's recombined in a new way in the book of Revelation. So if you don't go back to the Old Testament and look at things in context, 
you're going to have a hard time understanding what's happening in Revelation. One example of this is when Jesus uses that phrase, son of man, to identify himself. Why does Jesus call himself son of man? There are some people who say, oh, well, this is just a reference to his humanity. Well, okay, that's fine. But son of man is actually a title found in the Old Testament. And so if you go to the book of Daniel, you find that Daniel has a vision where one like the son of man ascends to the ancient of days and then takes possession of the kingdom. And the different kings of the world are um, envisioned there, symbolized there by different beasts, and he tames the beasts. So son of man means son of Adam. It means he's the new Adam. And so just as Adam ruled over the beasts of the field, this new Adam is going to rule over the empires. And so if you just read Son of Man and you don't make the Old Testament link, you're basically impoverishing your own Bible reading. You're not getting the full depth of what Jesus means there. But you can go even further. When Ezekiel says it's, when Daniel says it's one like a Son of Man who ascends to the Ancient of Days and takes possession of the kingdom and tames the beast, one of Daniel's contemporaries, Ezekiel, is called Son of Man I don't know how many times, but again and again and again in his book. So then you can make connections with that figure in Daniel 7 and Ezekiel, and then there's all kinds of connections that, that, that you can make between Ezekiel and Jesus. If Jesus is son of man and Ezekiel is son of man, well, in Ezekiel chapter 1, when Ezekiel is about 30 years old, he's taken down to the river Chebar, and it seems that this is his ordination to the priesthood slash prophethood, and next thing you know, the heavens are opening and he has this vision into heaven. Well, what happens when Jesus is about 30 years old? He goes down to the river of Jordan, he's baptized, that is his ordination to the priesthood, and heaven opens. So there's an analogy there. Ezekiel is the one who announces doom on the temple, and in one of Ezekiel's visions, he's actually the one who brings judgment against the temple. So when Jesus talks about the Son of Man, and then later in Matthew's Gospel connects that with, you know, with his ascension and with coming in judgment on the temple, you can say, well, Jesus is another Ezekiel. So there, there's an example where if you don't pick up on the echo of the Old Testament, your reading of the New Testament is going to be very, very thin. You're not going to see the full richness that's there. Another, just one more example of this, Paul in Philippians chapter 1 uh, talks about how there are people who are preaching the gospel. They're saying many true things, but out of false motives. And they basically have set themselves up as Paul's enemies. And Paul's in prison. And so these, these false preachers of the gospel are basically saying, well, Paul must have sinned, and that's why he is in prison. But Paul in, in Philippians, it's Philippians 1, I believe, maybe 1.13 or so, something like that. He says, this will turn out for my deliverance. Okay. Now, your, your Bible may or may not have cross-references that will tell you that this is actually something that Job says. But if you pick up on it, you'll start to think, well, okay, Paul says this will turn out for my deliverance. Job said this will turn out for my deliverance. Is Paul presenting himself to us as another Job? You know, Job was suffering, but for righteousness' sake. Well, Paul's suffering. He's in prison. He's suffering for righteousness' sake. Job had some friends who came along, and they said a lot of things that were true. They preached a lot of truth, but they did so out of bad motives, making accusations against Job. Well, Paul's got guys around him who are preaching a lot of true things, but they're doing so out of bad motives, and they're pointing the finger at Paul saying, well, he must have done something wrong. That's why he's in prison. And you start to make all these connections between Job and Paul. And of course, we know how the story of Job goes. Job ultimately gets vindicated and exalted in the end. Paul's in prison when he says, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's expecting, if not in his own personal life, in the history of the kingdom, for things to turn out like they did for Job. So you get this whole new dimension on how Paul has basically inserted himself into the story of Job and sees the story of Job replaying itself. But if you don't pick up on that echo, then you miss all of that richness that's in the text. So I would just say, 
catching these connections and then going back to the original source and saying, okay, what's happening here and why was this, you know, why was this quotation used and how is this whole passage being invoked or say in the case of Job, a whole book being invoked just by one phrase. Okay, that's really, really crucial, I think, to our Bible reading. How would you encourage somebody who's so uh, sitting here listening to you describe all of that and thinking, I would never see that on my own? just in my own Bible reading. Well, get yourself under a good pastor who will help you see those connections, who will help you make those connections. Uh, yeah, you're not going to make those connections on your own. It takes a lot of study. And I, so, you know, the, the examples I just gave you, you know, are things that may be hard for the typical Bible reader to get. But I would say just keep studying, keep studying your Bible, get to know your Bible really well, put yourself under good and faithful Bible preaching. And over time, you'll, you'll start to make a lot of these kind of connections yourself. Uh, we all miss all kinds of connections too, even the best. I mean, I would say, you know, Peter Lightheart and Jim, I've already mentioned them. I mean, Jim Jordan, they do really good work in this area. Richard Hayes does really good work in this area, even though he doesn't have the same doctrine of scripture or theological background. Uh, there's, there's a lot of commentators and, and, and biblical theologians who do good work in this area. So you can certainly um, improve your grasp of these things in that kind of way. But I would also say, don't feel bad if you don't catch all these illusions. I mean, that's not, you know, you're still going to get plenty of, uh, of meat out of the Bible, even if you can't catch all the illusions that are yeah, there. Yeah, to say that's not to challenge the simplicity of Scripture right. at all. Right. Right. right, that's right, that's right. Um, shifting topics a little bit, uh, you were talking about sports in our conversation about, or in your talk about uh, Psalm 78, um, and uh, alluded to the sort of... Uh, faux religion that sports can take uh, in our country. How do you uh, fight against that? How do you lean against that? Um, we believe that God gave us bodies that are, and, and sports are by no means evil. Right, um, right. But especially sort of the industry of it, you have um, men that will uh, prefer to stay home to watch the game rather than right, come to church on right, Sunday. Th right. That kind of thing, yeah. or leaving to go to the soccer, the kids' soccer games right, on Sundays. Right. How do you lean against that, fight against it, without becoming sort of Gnostic about it? Yeah. Well, I, I would say sports are great. I mean, we got lots of, um, for example, analogies that Paul uses from the realm of sports or athletics. You know, they're very positive so I would say sports play a crucial role. And I would say especially for young boys, molding them into men, uh, sports play a really crucial role because sports are basically warfare by other means. So there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a kind of discipline and, uh, and, and drive and ambition that comes with athletics that can be really, really good if it's honed and shaped and, and refined in the right kind of way. So I would say that sports can play a crucial role in the maturation of boys. Not saying it's not important for girls too, but I think especially for boys because we expect boys to be our warriors, our protectors, all of that, and that's very much tied in, I think, with, with uh, athletics. And also just being, you know, stewardship of the body, taking good care of your body. There's, a, there's, a, there's an aspect of that which would apply to men and women both. Uh, where sports can be very helpful, or at least some form of exercise, taking care of our health, all that. Uh, but it's got to be kept in its proper place. And we obviously live in a sports-obsessed culture. And so as Christians, we have to figure out where we draw the line. You know, I love college sports. I love professional sports. I like to watch. I like to play. You know, all of that. But I still have to make sure that I keep it appropriately compartmentalized in my life so it doesn't take over. You know, so it doesn't get into places where it shouldn't be. So it can be kept in proper perspective. If my team winning or losing is going to affect how I treat my family or other people, then I'm taking it too far. 
okay? If I let my love for the sport, whether it's watching, watching it or playing it or having my kids involved, if that takes me away from public worship, then obviously I've, I've, my priorities are out of line. My priorities are out of whack at that point. So um, no matter how important that little league game seems, um, the worship of the triune God is more important. And you'll do more to shape your child in the direction you want your child to go by missing the game and getting them into worship than you will by giving up on church and going to the game. And yeah, we've had families in, in our church uh, who have made big sacrifices because they've had kids who are really good athletes but made sacrifices to have their kids at worship. And, and I respect that. I appreciate that. I think they've done the right thing. And I will tell you this too because I've seen this play out many times. Um, thankfully, not so much with people in my church but just in, in, in various circumstances where the parents said, yeah, we're going to go to church but, you know, um, if, 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 the, if there's a game, we'll go to it. You know, we're, we're going to miss church for that. Well, what I have found is that when you start making excuses to not go to church, those excuses are not going to stay contained to just whatever you, you know, the ball game or whatever you think it was. And what I found is that kids who grow up that way, by the time they get to college, they don't see much reason to go to church. It just is not a high priority for them, and they tend to drift away. You drift away from church, you drift away from the faith, and next thing you know, your kid has gone apostate. So I'm not saying that that's always going to happen, that if you skip church once to go to a to, to a game. I'm not saying you're, you're, you're going to uh, have kids who apostatize, but I'm just saying there's a pattern there that I have noticed. I've seen it play out enough times that I've seen, you know, whereas the, the families that put a big premium on attending church over sporting events, made an effort to go to church when they were on vacation, just made it a priority where everybody in the family knew this is really, really important. Those are the kids who get most attached and locked in to attending church, I'd say for the rest of their lives. I'd say it's a great discipline uh, to, to be in. So I, I would just say, keep your priorities straight and recognize, I can't think of anything that would take priority over the worship of God. I mean, obviously if you're sick or something, then you stay away for, for pragmatic reasons. But otherwise, I can't, you know, if God has said, I want you to show up at such and such a time and such and such a place and I'm gonna, so we can have dinner together. Well, who's gonna stand God up? Are you gonna tell God that Little League is more important? Sorry, God, I got a better offer. Okay, I just don't think that's gonna fly. Um, talking more about Psalm 78, this, uh, the, the generational, or you, you made the comment that um, scripture does not indicate that there's a generational guilt that gets passed on, guilt for specific sin. There are consequences for sin, but not guilt. Um, you do have a story in, in 2 Samuel with uh, David. The, there's this uh, family of the Gibeonites that come to David and they're crying out for justice. Um, because of the way that Saul treated their family. Um, and they require the death of some of Saul's children or grandchildren. I forget the, the details. Um, and David executes them because of this. Can you uh, explain yes, that Yes, and I've us? looked at that story before, and uh, I should have looked at it again, knowing a question like this would come, because I, there is a good answer to it. I'm just drawing a blank on what it is. But, but one thing I would say is, uh, when you have a situation like that, uh, it could be that the descendants had not renounced the sin of their ancestors. And so if that's the case, then I think that that's different. Um, but I just can't remember the details of that story well enough to give you a good answer. But I can look and get back to whoever asked that question because it's a good question. Um, uh, moving on to Psalm 88, I had a lot of questions about Psalm 88 as yeah. you probably expected. So um, Psalm 88, um, how do we 
reconcile that, or you, you got to this sum in your talk, but how do we hold that along with the commands in Scripture to rejoice always, or the commands to um, to, to give thanks in the midst of trials? James right, 1, right. some of the other Psalms, right. oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. uh, Paul's exhortations in multiple letters to rejoice always, um, give thanks for all things right. that, you know, right. Heman doesn't seem to be doing right. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is, that is true. And I, I mean, I, that's, so, it, you know, in my, in my talk on Psalm 88, what I, what I, what I wanted to do is show how, even though Heman is raising all of these questions, um, the very fact that he's bringing his questions to God makes those questions a form of praise. There, th- this is an act of faith. Okay. If Heman has given up on God altogether, he would go to some other God, uh, with his questions and, and hope that some other God might treat him better. Okay, so the very fact that he's bringing all this to God means it is an act of praise, okay? So, and so that, that I think is one part of it is to understand that when you're in a really hard time, I, I think it would actually be you know, cruel to tell somebody at a funeral service who's grieving, say, the tragic loss of a child, hey, now wait a second, the Bible says to give thanks always and to rejoice how come you've got those tears? How come you're grieving? No, there's got to be space for grieving. So I think when, when the Bible says that uh, we're to give thanks always or rejoice, I think there are two ways of looking at that. One is that eventually our grief turns to joy. Eventually our grief turns to gratitude. So you've lost your child. You're grieving over that. You grieve over that first season. But as you work through your grief, you get to a point where you can thank God for the time you had with your child. And you can thank God for the fact that you'll be reunited with your child in the resurrection. And you can find various ways to give God thanks and you can rejoice in what God has given you even though you went through this, you know, this horrific uh, loss. So that, that's one way of looking at it. The other way to look at it is that when we're taking our grief to God, that itself is, uh, a, is a form of, uh, of uh, there, there's a kind of gratitude in that because there's a kind of faith in that. So, so that even though Heman doesn't explicitly say, God, I thank you, the fact that he's coming to God means there's a kind of thankfulness or a kind of faithfulness implied in his actions. So, so I would say on the one hand, um, maybe, maybe Lamentations is a good example of this because in the book of Lamentations, uh, Jeremiah is grieving the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. But Lamentations is set up as an acrostic. Okay? So every new section of the book starts with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Okay? So you know, 22 letters, 22 sections. You know, we would say from... Lamentations is grief from A to Z. But what that means is if grief is alphabetical rather than numerical, grief is bounded. So there's a place for grief, and then, and then you return to joy. So that, that's a way of looking at it. So I, I would say you know, Christians can express their grief. Uh, we can express that sorrow. But yes, on the other side of that, we expect there to be this this. Uh, this joy. And maybe that doesn't always happen in this life exactly the way that we would want it to. But um, I, I do think that there is that hope, that expectation that we will work through whatever grief we're enduring and there will be joy on the other side. So th- those two things. One is taking your questions and your pain to God is itself an act of faith. And then second, recognizing that whatever grief we have is in some way bounded by joy. If grief is alphabetical, it's A to Z. Joy is numerical. It's infinite. It goes on and on and on. It seems like um, it, when you were walking through Psalm 88, it actually sounded a lot like the anti-Psalm 23 yeah, I thought that, about you, that. <laughs> that you uh, read from uh, David Pallison last night. Um, 
And somebody else made this comment uh, earlier, and I think it was insightful. It seems like Psalm 88 is sort of the psalm that David might have prayed mm, while absolutely. he was in the valley, in the valley of the shadow of, of death. death. And, and we just don't yeah. know the rest of Psalm 23. It's just that right. snapshot. Right. Um, right. And it's appropriate to pray it while you're there, calling out to the right. God of your salvation. Um, Right. But it's just that snapshot. Well, and, and here's another way to think about this. And I didn't mention this. Uh, I think it's relevant. How hard you push this, I don't know. Um, but the tradition among the Jews was, you know, the, the, the Psalter has five books. And every book ends with a doxology. So your English translation will generally highlight where those books begin and end, where the, where the breaks are. So uh, the, the Psalter has five books. They roughly correspond to the five books of Moses, uh, in terms of their themes and whatnot. So there's a kind of progression there. But every one of those five books ends with a doxology. Well, it was the custom of the Jews, whenever they came to the end of a psalm, they would then tack on the doxology that came from the end of that book. So it might be that when Psalm 88 was actually sung, say in the synagogues or sung at, temp at the temple, that it did actually end with a doxology of some sort. So that would be another way of pointing to, on the other side of this grief, there is joy, that returns. So that, 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 that could be another way of, of looking at that. So, so yes, but the way you described it with Psalm 23, that's a good connection to make. When David's in the valley of the shadow of death, maybe he prays Psalm 88, and then when he comes out, you have you know, the rest of what Psalm 23 goes on to say. Something like that could be true too. Um, two similar questions here. Um, what, how would you help or what would you say to a Christian who has been struggling with depression or, and or struggling with other kinds of... Um, not other kinds, but, but addiction mm -hmm. um, uh, or addictions and keeps going back to it um, for a long time. And it seems like both with the depression and with the addiction, it seems like God is not helping. Right, right. And well, they, come, they, they repent yeah. of it or they call it to God and, and they're stuck. What we call depression actually covers a really wide range of different forms of emotional distress. And so this is one thing to understand there can be all different kinds of causes sometimes, and, and maybe even most of the time, multiple causes involved. We're, we're complicated body-soul creatures. We have a physical and a spiritual dimension to who we are. They, they, they interact with one another. But, but just to, another passage that deals with this, actually it's a pair of Psalms, Psalm 42 and 43. What's really interesting to me in 42 and 43, and I might just even look at this, um, but what's interesting is that you see different, uh, different ways in which, I mean, I think you can say in these Psalms, David is really going through a kind of depression, and David deals with it in a variety of ways. So, um, well, I won't, I won't read all of this because it, it's, a, it's a long Psalm. But, but uh, what, one thing that you see in Scripture, I think, is that... Um, for example, Elijah is going through a period of depression, and what God does is God brings him food, okay? So there could be very uh, tangible, physical ways of dealing with some forms of depression where, let's say, if you're not getting enough sleep, that can feed into your depression. There might be other reasons for you being depressed, but it could be that you're sleep-deprived, or it could be that you've got a really bad diet, and that's factoring in. Uh, what, what I would say is, you know, let's not take a Gnostic approach that, that spiritualizes everything. Because I do think that there are some 
physical factors involved in the depression that a lot of people experience. And so um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, Spiritual Depression, you really only have to read about the first 20 pages of that book. I mean, you know, if you think I'm long-winded, just try Lloyd-Jones, okay? Because uh, he was really long-winded. Uh, it's sort of very, you know, detailed and ponderous in a lot of his speaking. But, but that book, about the first 20 to 30 pages or so, does a really good job of summarizing what he calls spiritual depression. But one thing he recognizes there is that there can be physical factors involved in spiritual depression. And so we should not ignore things like sleep and diet and other sort of aspects of our physical routine, I would even say, you know, exercise and things like that, that can genuinely make a difference. And you see hints of that, glimpses of that in scripture, okay? Uh, so, you know, I mean, the, the, the Bible itself acknowledges that we are psychosomatic creatures, that we have bodies and our bodies matter and what we do with our bodies can affect the way we experience life spiritually. Uh, so so there's, there's that whole aspect to it. So that, that, that's one thing. And I, I've seen people who uh, have dealt with what they call depression that really just turned out to be sleep deprivation and they didn't even really realize it or just you know, problems with their diet or whatnot. But there are other forms of depression that have much more spiritual causes, sometimes unjust suffering, okay, persecution, uh, or, or sometimes simply loss, like the loss of a loved one can put somebody into a period of depression. And that's not altogether unexpected. And we should recognize that people are going to have to work through things like that. And again, the Bible gives us all kinds of tools and resources for working through things like that. And so, you know, the community that you have around us, you know, other people who can just sort of walk through that with you and not be like Job's counselors and, you know, um, make accusations or, or who would give you false comfort, you know, but people who can genuinely walk with you through the difficulties you're enduring, that can be a huge help. So to have a community around you when you go through hard times, that, that, that's very significant. Or sometimes there are sin issues involved and people are depressed because the reality is they're just living a rebellious life. Sometimes depression happens because our subconsciousness disapproves of what we're doing with our consciousness. And so... Sometimes kids who rebel uh, against their parents, even in subtle ways, sort of get sullen and angry and depressed, and nobody really can figure out why, but it's because they're living this life, and it may even be a somewhat secretive life, of rebellion. And so, of, of course, they end up depressed because they're living contrary to God's design. And, and, and a lot of times, depression is a function of guilt or shame that we feel over things that have been done to us or that we're doing. So th there's so many different factors involved in this. And what a good Christian pastor will do is uh, help someone to diagnose what's going on. I'm not saying we can always figure it out because, again, we are, we're not infinitely deep, but we're almost infinitely deep because we're made in God's image. So again, there can be so many different things going on spiritually, physically, and, and the interaction of the two that it can be very hard to figure out. But I, I've even, you know, found a good, you know, just to give you an example of this, somebody who was experiencing depression, uh, I found a good Christian doctor for them to go to. And we had, you know, a pastor working alongside a medical doctor to basically help with somebody's condition. And we found that there were a variety of spiritual and physical factors contributing to it. And the person was able to really, you know, move through and then beyond their depression. So, uh, you know, there's just, there's so many different things that could be going on here. I think somebody like Spurgeon probably endured a lot of melancholy, partly because of his personality, um, partly because he was Baptist. No, not really. Um, <laughs> but maybe. Um, I mean, he was post-millennial, basically, so there's, there was that. But, but also partly because he had a gigantic church and he felt a massive amount of responsibility. And I don't know that he had the best way of 
handling that responsibility, the, the overwhelming responsibility of pastoring what was basically at that time the largest church in the world, and yet feeling this, like, this deep sense of, I, you know, I'm in some way responsible to shepherd all of these people. So, I mean, there's a lot of things there. And we might say, well, we could have set up a better, you know, better system of caring for the people in the congregation that would have relieved Spurgeon of some of those burdens that he felt that kept him in the state of melancholy for so long, perhaps. But perhaps there also wasn't anybody to do it, and it was just going to be the way it is. I mean, sometimes God assigns someone a lot in life that's pretty difficult, you know, and that's just a reality. Uh, so I, I do think that the Christian life should be characterized by joy, but we have to have space in the church and our own lives for times of grief, sorrow, sadness, melancholy. Uh, I, I, you know, again, we've got so many Psalms that deal with this. I think it would be strange if you had people who never experienced and could not relate to any of that. It's like, are you paying attention? You know? Um, but I think most, most Christians can. Most Christians have, have been there, have been through hard times, know what that struggle is like. And, um, you know, hopefully God brought them out of it and brought them to a more joyous place, but they know what it's like. Uh, so, um, so again, it's complicated. I think there's a, there's, there's a lot of different factors there. I think a wise pastor acting as a counselor will help somebody diagnose what's going on and look at all the different possibilities that are there. Can you also, um, you mentioned addiction. Yeah. Addiction. Really yeah. So, that. so the question I think there is, um, related, but somebody who is, um, has had an addiction for a long time, um, has tried to get out of it, maybe gets out for a season, but just keeps going back to it and feels like God's not yeah. helping me. Yeah. If God wants yeah. me to get out of this, why isn't he helping yeah. me get out of this? Well, God's help sometimes comes in very mundane ways. Sometimes when somebody says God's not helping me, what they mean is they prayed about something, but they haven't acted. So the praying can be good. You know, so say it's somebody who keeps turning to alcohol and abusing alcohol. We all know that alcohol is God's good gift. God gives wine to gladden the hearts of men. Uh, Deuteronomy 14, you know, we can celebrate with, um, with, with wine and every other you know, beer, every other good gift God gives to us. But we also know these things can be abused, and we've got a lot of warnings about that in Scripture. So let's just say, for the sake of the argument, that's what we have, is somebody who has uh, an alcohol addiction, they have become what the Bible would call a drunkard. Okay? Now they might say, well, I prayed, and I'm still, you know, I still find myself going back to the bottle. Okay? Well, I, I would say praying is not nearly enough. Um, one of the reasons that rehab clinics are often very successful with this, and obviously they vary in quality and vary in what they would teach, and some, some we might really object to, but the, there are some out there that do a good job. And one of the reasons they do a good job is because they, they, they know that we are not just spiritual creatures, we are embodied creatures, and you have to retrain the body. And so they bring bodily discipline to bear upon the addiction. And I think there's, there's a lot to be said for that. And this is one of the reasons why AA, which is not, well, this is another aspect. So AA, which is not Christian, but has been hugely successful in helping people break free of alcohol abuse, one of the reasons it's been so, well, there are really a lot of reasons why it's been so successful. I think it kind of mimics a Christian worldview in certain ways. But one of the things it does is it provides accountability. So it takes into account the fact that we are communal creatures, and that having other people hold us accountable is, is a really good thing. I mean, I've seen this with pornography addiction, where having somebody hold you accountable is one of the keys to breaking free. Um, you know, and you, you, you need somebody who, in the moment of temptation, that you can reach out to and get that pushback. Okay? Uh, so I, I'd say that kind of thing is really, really crucial. So, so just taking into account 
who we are as creatures made in God's image, that we're spiritual and physical, so you can't just deal with one or the other. You gotta deal with both. And we're not just individuals, we're communal creatures as well, so you gotta deal with the social element and the accountability or encouragement or everything else. So I, I would wanna know, if somebody keeps struggling with this encouragement, what's, what's the weakness? You know, when they're falling into this sin again and again, why is that happening? And what, 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 what is it about the reality of human nature that they're missing in the way they're trying to deal with the problem? Um, you talked about how Psalm, all the Psalms um, we should see as the prayers of Jesus, including Psalm 88. So Jesus on the cross. I, I loved the connection between the darkness for three hours right. and the, um, the psalmist saying that darkness is my only friend. Um, but Jesus uh, knew more than we did, than we do. Jesus knew the end of the story, even, even in his humanity, he had faith and knew the end of the story. He knew what was going to happen. Um, so how is it, um, how do we look at Jesus as our example when we're in that darkness and um, we can trust that there's light at the end of the tunnel. We can trust that, because we, maybe we've seen, we, we know our Bibles, we know that Jesus, that there was light at the end of the tunnel for Jesus. Right. But we don't have the same sort of knowledge. It seems like, well, yeah, it was easy for Jesus to, to trust God in the midst of that because he was God. Right. Right. How, how, is that, yeah. how is that actually encouraging to a Christian? Well, I would, yeah, that, that, that's, that's a good question. I mean, no, we're not Jesus. That is true. So he, he does know more than we do. But I would say we do have enough. We have more than enough to get us through the hardest of times in the promises of Scripture. And even, you know, the, the reality is there are some wounds that just can't be healed in this life. Okay? Um, another Lord of the Rings reference, you know, when Frodo gets stabbed at Weathertop. Okay, he never got over that wound. It stayed with him. And there are certain losses or uh, traumatic events that we go through that you're just not going to get fully over in this life. You will not fully, it doesn't mean you can't have joy. It doesn't mean you can't live you know, a, a, a well-adjusted, happy life. But they're just, you're just not gonna totally get over it. I know, especially for people, I mean, it's one thing to lose a parent. It's another thing to have to bury a child. I know several situations where this has happened. And this, this is kind of what I've seen with that, that when somebody loses a child, there's something unnatural about parents having to bury their own child. It just goes against the grain of things, obviously. And, and there's, a, there's a loss, there's an empty space in your life from that point on that you, this is not anything that you can do. I mean, you're, that child's not coming back. You're not gonna see that child again until the resurrection. So what do you do in the meantime? Um, or having a child apostatize can be just as bad. Um, and in some cases, even worse, because then you don't have the comfort of, oh, well, I will see my child in the resurrection. What if my child goes to hell and we're separated for all eternity? Okay, uh, and that'll really test. You know, your Luke fourteen. You know, do you love Jesus more than anything else? Kind of thing. Um, so, uh, so there are things that we can go through that can be very traumatic, or that can bring a lot of grief into our lives, a lot of pain that maybe we don't fully get over. But I would say, even then, we have the hope and the knowledge that there is a resurrection coming, there is a final new creation, a final new heavens and new earth, where every tear will be wiped away, and we will have the infinite bliss of basking in the glory and the joy of God himself for all eternity. And so knowing that that is our future, knowing that that is what's coming, that that's our destiny, I think does enable us to get through whatever else we're dealing with you know, on this side of the resurrection, um, because we do have that glorious future promised to us. Uh, and, and no matter what trauma or loss or grief you have to endure in this life, 
all of that can work for your ultimate good. All of that can somehow feed into that final glory. You know, your sufferings are working for you, an eternal weight of glory. You just have to keep believing that that's true. You have to trust that God's word is right, even when it's hard to do that. Final question. Um, given these four Psalms, and it covers a huge spectrum of things, yeah. um, if you could change one thing in the American church today, uh -huh. in, kind of in, in this realm of all the things that you talked about, um, what would it be? I would make Dave Hatcher the Pope of the American church, <laughs> and then he could just tell everybody else what to do. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's a great, I mean, yeah, it's like, what's the one thing that would kind of fix everything else that's wrong? I mean, there's so many things wrong, it's hard to, hard to pick one thing. I mean, so here, here are things that I think about in response to that question. What if we only had qualified men as leaders of our churches? Okay, what would that do? If, 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 if the leadership in our churches really conformed to 1 Timothy 3, those qualifications, what would happen then? Okay, that, that's, that's one thing I think about. Um, because obviously that's not the case today. We've got lots of unqualified leadership. Um, another thing I think about is, well, what if the American church actually did sing the Psalms? You know, what if we replaced all of our praise and worship choruses, you know, our, our, our sentimental music, our Jesus is my girlfriend kind of music with Psalms? Then what? you know, what would happen. Uh, and, I, and I think that's one of those things that could have a revolutionary effect. Um, what if our preaching actually preached the word, uh, the whole word, the, the whole counsel of God, faithfully and boldly? Because, I mean, let's face it, um, the typical American pastor, even in your conservative evangelical church, I think even in your typical Reformed church, is just a coward who is just not going to say what the text says to his congregation. So what if you fix that? There's so many things wrong. There's so many things that can be fixed. I don't think there is one thing that you could fix that would fix everything else. I don't think it's that simple. But I do think that if you started to fix some of these things, others would, 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 would follow. Um, <clears throat> so um, I guess my plan for reform is bigger than just one thing. But I would say those are the kind of things that I think about when I think about what's wrong with the American church and where do we need to go from here. You know, put the Psalms back at the center. Let's have qualified leadership. Let's teach and preach God's word faithfully, fully, and boldly. Those, I think, are, are key things that we need. Amen. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you all very much. Thanks for having me.